Hey everyone, welcome to Dance Colleges and Careers, brought to you by InstaDance. Professional training to dynamically style your technique, stage presence, and confidence. My name is Brittany Noltzmeyer, and I'll be your guide to helping you find the perfect college for you. Dance Colleges and Careers is here to provide you with information about different colleges, what to expect, and how to find the right college for your dance style. Go to instadancecoach.com with any further questions and follow me on social media at instadancecoach, I-N-S-T-A-D-A-N-C-E-C-O-A-C-H. Let's hit it. Hi, everyone. Today we have Maddie Kurtz joining us and she's coming from Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Maddie, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks. So Maddie, she's living in Tallahassee where she is the research associate at the Maggie Alice National Center for Choreography at Florida State University, as well as an adjunct faculty member in the School of Dance. And she holds a BA in Dance and Religious Studies from Colby College and an MFA in Choreography from SUNY Brockport, which I think is pretty interesting. So we're going to hit that MFA category today and learn a little bit about that. She teaches and choreographs throughout the Southeast, and she's setting pieces at studios and her company, MCREP. Is that right? MK Rep. MK Rep. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Like Maddie Kurtz Rep. She's a national competition adjudicator with StarQuest, Inspire, and Impact Dance Adjudicators. And we met at Inspire, but I work for StarQuest too. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, maybe we met there too. I'm going on my sixth year with StarQuest. I've been with them forever. Oh, <laughs> that's me with Inspire. I've been with them forever. Ah, so we are like on opposite, opposite tracks there. Yeah, opposite but similar. Opposite but same. Hey, Maddie. So let's start with talking about that MFA in choreography. Let's begin at the very beginning. How does one even start to think like I should get my master's in dance? What what are some maybe like future goals that would lead a dancer towards wanting to get that degree, that master degree? Yeah. So if you don't know, an MFA is a terminal degree, which means that it is the highest level of a, de of a degree, which means that it gives you the credentials to teach at a university. So if, if you have the goal of being a college professor or teaching at the university level in any capacity, usually an MFA is the minimum requirement. And of course, like some schools will make exceptions if you have a ton of experience, but if you're younger, maybe haven't had a major performance career, that MFA is what's going to get you in the door. I also think if you're wanting more support for your choreography to make your work, more support for your research, whether it's written research or choreographic research or more support for mentorship on your teaching. These are all reasons to continue your education in an MFA program. Cool. And do you, obviously you have to have a thesis and purpose for going through getting your master's. Is that something that you already had as a basis before going to school, like you really cared about a certain thing and you wanted to have more research in that area? Or did that kind of evolve as you were getting your master's? That's a great question. I went in with one idea and I did a complete 180. So I... What'd you go in with? I actually went to one program and transferred out, which we can talk about a little bit later in terms of program selection and fit. But I had this one research area and I had a faculty member who was a really amazing mentor at the first school on that topic. But then overall, the program wasn't a great fit. So I left and then my interests completely shifted and my thesis ended up being on a completely different topic. So that's the awesome thing about school is that you're just so immersed in the coursework and in your own work, making choreography and writing that 
things just shift and bubble and it gets to really exciting places. And you have unlimited access to libraries and unlimited access to faculty members who are just such a wealth of knowledge and your peers who can just challenge you in ways that you didn't expect or know. Yeah. When you say peers, do you mean other other MFA students? Yeah. Because I know that program can be kind of small, right? So I don't know yeah. if that means a smaller community. Depending on the school, the first cohort I was in was 12 of us, and that was huge. And it was a little bit overwhelming, like the faculty, they hadn't accepted that big of a cohort. Do you mind if I ask where, what school you started at? Yeah. So I started at FSU, which is where I work now, ironically. (laughs) Um, So I do have a very special place in my heart for FSU. I work there now. But I left and I, so my class was 12 people at FSU. And then I went to Brockport and we started with four and one ended up dropping the program. So we graduated with three, which was very small, but we were very close and we complemented each other really well and had really different interests in the best way. I will also say because I went to school younger, the upper class undergraduates were pretty close to my age. So they functioned as great collaborators as well in my process. And there are a couple of undergrads who were seniors when I was graduating who are I would say four years younger than me, which isn't a huge age gap. And they're still my friends. I still make work with them. So it's just a really amazing way to network and meet people who will eventually be your circle and your collaborative cohort outside of school. Cool. So did you end up going to school right out of college? I did. And I know that a lot of people discourage it. And looking back, I would not change it for the world because I do have more perspective now that I'm a little bit older and able to look back and think, wow, like if I went to school now, I would get more out of it, but I would only get more out of it because I've been through it. If that makes sense. Like I've had this amazing education and now I have so much information and perspective that I'm like, I want to do it again. But if I did it again, it would be different. So I wouldn't change it for the world. I think that for like, if you're 22 and your sole reason for wanting to go to grad school is that you want to teach in academia, that's not the right approach because you're not going to, the MFA is, is yes. Yes. It's your prereq for the job application, but think about all the people in their mid forties who have had careers and are applying for the same five jobs that are available. You're not going to get it. But if you're wanting to increase your education and deepen your knowledge and practice teaching and get really great mentorship. Like if you're invested in your creative process and growth, then go for it. I mean, I went to a small liberal arts college, so I had really amazing theory training, like my history classes and things like that, but I didn't get to take as many physical dance classes because they just weren't available. And so for me, it was about continuing my training, but most of my peers and colleagues were in the opposite boat. So like I came in And the research classes were like easy for me. Like I was used to reading scholarly articles and writing and reflecting on them, but I wasn't as used to the rigorous dance training because I had been out of it from my competition days. And I was dancing a good amount in college, but not like the people coming from BFA programs. Sure. So we all come in with different strains, but that's what makes it so beautiful. But yeah, I would say that if you're, if you're really young and you're thinking about it, think about your priorities and goals at the end, because you can get a lot out of it when you're 22. You can also get a lot of, out of it when you're 32. So yeah, it's all about what, what you want to do with it. Cool. Yeah, nice. Some good information. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I don't know a lot about the MFA world. So let's talk a little bit about the selection and fit because you said you went to the first school and it wasn't a great fit, but you obviously still love the school. Maybe what are some things that weren't a great fit for you or something for students to think about even as they're choosing their 
BFA program or BA. Yeah. I think I've listened to a couple of your episodes and you mentioned like prestige and I think it can get in the way. Like FSU has this incredible reputation. It's a great program, but it's not a great program for everyone. And so I picked it because it had a great name and Brockport has a good name, but it's not at the same level as FSU to a lot of people. But the name isn't what gets you the job. You get you the job, right? And like your experience and the way that you take advantage of a program, and this is true of undergraduate institutions as well, like it's what you make of it. So you can go to, I don't know, you can go to Point Park, which is a fantastic program and not do anything with it. Or you can go to a tiny liberal arts school that no one's heard of and have a career. So I think finding faculty members whose research aligns with yours, if you know what your research is. And if you don't know, then maybe narrowing it down to an area like I'm interested in teaching, I'm interested in performance, I'm interested in choreography. And maybe there's a faculty member whose choreography you really admire and you want to know more about their process, go to that school. Also, like during the audition process, which we can also talk about later, there's a lot to be learned in the aesthetic of the class. And I did not pay enough attention. So if the program is making you take ballet and pink tights and a black leotard and that's not your jam, maybe the school isn't the right fit for you. And Mm -hmm. if their grad students are going to be required to be in that dress code, taking those classes every day, and you're like a release-based postmodern gal who likes to roll on the floor, maybe the program is right for you. (laughs) Talking about myself here. And so while I got some great training, I had really good ballet training growing up and the ballet training at FSU is top notch, but the modern classes there the faculty has shifted a lot, but the modern classes when I was there were a little bit more codified, like we were taking Graham and Glimone-based work. And I was used to this postmodern release-based post-Judson downtown New York aesthetic of dance. Okay, And so I wasn't getting that. And part of the reason I went to FSU was A, name. B, I was like, this is so different from what I'm used to. That would be cool. But then I, it wasn't right because the work that I was making was aligned with the other aesthetic and the program wasn't mm-hmm. able to really support that. And so... Mm-hmm. Although I will say if I went there now, the program would be able to support it because there's been a lot of turnover. But then at Brockport, the technique classes, first of all, ballet wasn't required for grad students. So I got to take a lot more modern classes, um, contemporary, whatever you want to call it. That's another discussion for another day. (laughs) But I got to take my like postmodern release-based classes from many, many different faculty with very diverse backgrounds, but all in that same aesthetic. And because of that, they were able to support my choreographic work at a more like parallel level, I would say. And the feedback that I was getting on my work was a little bit more beneficial to me. There was also a, this is something else to consider. Look at what the thesis requirement is. It's hard to think about it, especially if you're 22 and you're like, I don't know, I just want to get an MFA. But it's so important to look at the requirements because some programs, you just have to make a dance. Some programs, Brockport, you have to make a dance. You have to write a very substantial thesis equivalent to what you would write in an MA program, which is like a precursor to a PhD. And that's a theory-based program. I wrote an 85-page paper to go with my 30-minute dance. At FSU, I would not have written that 85-page paper. I would have written my proposal of 10 to 15 pages. I think they might have changed it. But a short paper, it might even be shorter than that, like 8 to 10, made a 25-minute dance and done an oral and written comp exam like a timed, here are questions about your piece. So make sure that you look at those requirements because it's important to find something that aligns with what you want to get out of the program. Sure. And some programs, like you won't have to do basically any writing and some programs it's all writing. So just knowing yourself and your goals and your strengths and weaknesses and where you, where you fall in those different categories is really important, I think. And 
it's hard to know that going in. Like, I wish someone had told me that people only told me to look at like aesthetic and faculty members, but like thesis is a big component. Your third year is like all thesis. So yeah, super important. Interesting. Interesting. So you said MA versus, and then of course there's an MFA. Right. Can you get an MA in dance? Is that a can? So there are two types of MAs. I don't have one. So I'm just speaking off the top of my head, but the MFA is a creative degree. It's a terminal degree. The MA is not terminal, which means it's not going to get you in the door at a university, but it is going to get you in the door to a PhD program. If that's something that you're interested in, it's a dance studies approach usually, which means that you're you're writing about dance and reading about dance, usually not a review or critiquing dance, but more of like a critical lens. So maybe you're looking at dances of the African diaspora and you're writing papers about a specific choreographer, that type of thing. So it's a little bit more academically focused in that way. Or I should say a different academic focus. Sure. Can you, so if you go along this MA route to get your doctorate, could you give me an example of what type of job you might yeah. See yourself heading to exactly the same as an MFA. The difference is that you'll probably get paid more in academia <laughs> if you have a PhD and you'll be more qualified to teach the theory classes. So if a large research okay. university like an FSU is hiring, they're going to be hiring specifically like a technique faculty member or a theory faculty member versus like where I went to undergrad at Colby, everyone does everything because it's a tiny school and they'll hire someone who like my mentor, for example, they'll hire someone who can do it all. And she has an MFA, but she writes sure. as if she has a doctorate. She's a great writer, super academically focused. It sets you up for similar job prospects, but then there's also MA in dance education, which if you're wanting to teach like in a public school, that can come with a K-12 certificate or licensure, depending on your state and get you in the door for that. It's also, if you're just wanting to deepen your teaching, but you don't want to go through the MFA, MA programs are usually a little shorter, one or two years. So if you're wanting to okay. deepen your teaching practice in that way and not in academia, but rather like in private studios or the K-12 setting, that's a good route to take. Hmm. Okay. Become an InstaDance Insider today. InstaDance Coach is virtual guidance toward a professional dance career. It is an exclusive program for the serious dancer. If you are a dedicated, passionate dancer with drive and hunger for success, you can apply today at www.instadancecoach.com. Wow. So you said, let's talk about the audition process. <laughs> what should we talk about? <laughs> about it. It's pretty intense for MFA program. For the MF, for an MFA yeah. program? So usually how it will work is you will submit all of your application materials in like November, December. Make sure you check deadlines well in advance too, because some schools are like November 1st, November 15th. And if you start thinking about this on November 15th, you've missed those and you can only apply to the programs that are due in December. And that's unfortunate because then you're just limiting yourself. <laughs> yeah. But basically, you'll turn in, depending on the school, like a basic application, um, usually some sort of statement of intent, like, here's why I want to go to grad school right now. Here's what I'm doing. And then some schools will ask for samples of choreography. So like links to YouTube or Vimeo, videos of your work or performance. And then you'll go to a live audition. Most of the programs are two days. They do not fly you out. You have to fund your way there. I will say now in this time of COVID might be a great time to apply because they're probably doing everything virtually. So if it's in the back of your mind, you might think about it just to save some money. Yeah. I know as artists, we don't have endless funds and deep pockets usually. So <laughs> it can be a bit of a strain. 
having to fly across the country because you're excited about a program in California. I did that. <laughs> um, yeah. it was hard. Oh, and yeah. then you have to get a hotel if it's two days. Some programs are really nice and we'll say like, they'll set you up with a student to stay with. So you don't have to pay for a hotel, but you still have to get yourself there. Yeah. Right. Usually you'll have to do, you'll have to perform a solo. Some schools will make you do a timed writing exercise where you'll like watch a video and read an article and have to synthesize based on a prompt. You'll o- almost always have to take class. Some schools you'll take ballet and modern. Most, most programs that I looked at were just a modern class. Some sort of interview with either a member of a graduate admissions committee and or the full faculty. Again, depends on the program. What else? It was a long time ago. Sometimes you'll get to sit in on a class. Sometimes you'll get to have lunch or go out to drinks with the grad students, which is super helpful. And if they don't arrange it for you, try to arrange that for yourself because inside scoop is everything. And from my experience, every student in a graduate program is more than willing to give you the nitty gritty, dirty details of... Mm -hmm the good, the bad, and the ugly, like no program is perfect. So even if you found your dream school, it's good to know going in, like what, what are the potential flaws of the program and what's really great and what outweighs what else? Another thing is that you, this will branch us into another conversation, but you might be asked to teach a class, usually to non-majors to essentially audition for funding. So one piece of advice that I was given was do not go to grad school unless it is paid for. And I will second that you don't want to be in debt if you are in the arts. I think for undergrad, it can be okay to take out some student loans to go to your dream program if that's what you're needing to do to get the training that you're wanting. But for graduate school, you do not want to be in debt with an MFA because you will never pay it off. Okay. I personally don't (laughs) have any debt because I got good funding and I took that advice to not go to a program if it wasn't funded. Most schools have good funding. It usually comes in the form of a teaching assistantship. So, which is great because if you're wanting to go into academia, ultimately you're getting experience teaching real college courses, grading students, et cetera. So often in your audition, you'll teach Mm. a class or you'll submit a video of a class that they can decide if you're worthy. And then sometimes you'll do like research assistantships with professors or other like supervisory or office tasks to pay for your school. Huh. So it's not so much of scholarships like what you get for BFA. There are some fellowships. Exactly. There are some fellowships at larger universities that'll usually you'll get like an assistantship to cover your tuition. And then you might get a fellowship that pays for your living expenses. Not everyone is so lucky to get all of those things. And some programs don't have all of those things. So make sure that you ask if that's something that you're needing. If you don't have like savings or family support or anything like that, make sure that you're really on top of that funding because don't want to be an artist with a lot of (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. I mean, I know I've thought about that. (laughs) That's one of the things that I was like, how, how do you get your MFA and really, you know, come out of it. Right. Exactly. And the funding is huge. And again, some, some of the larger universities tend to have better funding packages, but you never know. So always ask. And sometimes there are external funding sources. Like if you come from a minority or marginalized group, there might be a university wide scholarship, like fellowship scholarship available. And that can be stacked with your teaching assistantship. So you can get the teaching money to cover your tuition. It's usually a tuition waiver of nine credits and then you can get some external money to like pay your rent. Wow. Awesome. So I talk about this in several of my earlier episodes about like being in state or Mm -hmm. out of state, you know, that can really cause big decision-making when choosing your BABFA. Does that come into play with an MFA or is it just? No. So 
any program, go where you want. Most programs, so the way they did it at FSU, some are not as explicit. So I'll share this. FSU was super explicit. They give you the financial aid coming in and they tell you the second you move here, you have to become a resident. So you have to change over your driver's license, your car insurance, your car registration, your mailing address on file, whatever, et cetera. So you change that all over. And then a year later, they support you at the in-state level. But when you come in out of state, they give you whatever you need. They give you the full tuition coverage. But at Brockport, they weren't as explicit. And I, but I knew to do that. So the second I got to New York, I changed everything from Florida to New York. And then after my first year, Mm. I got in-state tuition and the funding at Brockport wasn't quite as robust as the funding at FSU. So I was very glad I did that because I had to pay for a couple credits, but in-state credits at the New York school at a SUNY school, they were like stupidly cheap. So I ended up being able to pay out of pocket from a savings account for those because it was such it was like neg- negligible money in the long run. Interesting. So yeah, the don't let that, it's not like a BABFA where that should make your decision for you. Okay. Do you know um, if you're a BABFA, when you move there, should you become a resident and look at doing that similar little, to how you did it? It's tricky. It depends. If your parents are paying for college, no, because you, they're going to claim you as a dependent. And you mm-hmm. can't claim a different address if you're a dependent. Okay. But if you are paying for college by yourself, it's definitely worth looking into because if you become a resident after the first year, you'll get that in-state rate. Just be really diligent. Make sure every state's a little different in terms of the requirements and paperwork and the paper trail that you need to have. I think it's like a bank account also. There's something financial in there to prove that you're not a dependent on your parents and you're not just like mooching off of the, your parents, but also getting in state tuition. Yeah. But yeah, if you're paying your way through school by yourself independently, I would say look into it because it's going to make a huge difference after that first year. Yeah. That's a great tip. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some modern versus contemporary. If you are interested in that, sure. we really haven't talked very much modern, talked about very much modern on this podcast yet, but I think at least when I was looking at college, it's been many years now, you know, the modern programs were very modern. And now growing up, everybody's doing contemporary and might be a little surprised when getting into a modern program, unless you see these programs changing to be more contemporary. Do you have thoughts on this? Yes. I think a lot of the programs, their language and labeling has not caught up with the with what they're actually doing. So okay. I think that at most schools, unless more old school programs will have you take like Graham, Limon, Cunningham, these codified modern techniques. But most programs now that are quote unquote modern based are arguably contemporary. Now, if you're in the competition world and you're doing contemporary, it's going to look very different from the contemporary that they're doing at these schools. To me, the word contemporary just means it's happening now. Versus modern is like an art movement, the modernist period. And so if you're not doing a codified modern technique or like a mishmash of those things, and you're doing this like releasing into the floor, rolling, spiraling, again, that downtown New York aesthetic, that to me is contemporary dance, just as much as what I see on the competition stage is. Although often that competition stuff is verging on lyrical. conversation too. But yeah, I'll say like, I think that the issue is that the programs haven't caught up in terms of their 
languaging and naming with what they're actually doing, especially because now there was just like a huge overturn of so many faculty members, like in the last five years, people retiring. And a lot of those people are like the tail end of the codified techniques. And so these people who are like in their, I'd say like late thirties, early and mid forties are coming in and they've got this more downtown New York release based aesthetic. And so they're teaching contemporary and some schools have shifted like FSU. When I was there, I feel like we called it modern, but now they call it contemporary. So they've got it down at FSU and everyone else should take it because Rockport's calling their classes modern. And I'm like, this is not a modern class. This is the postmodern slash contemporary class. So confusing. There's so much going on. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then sometimes I know that programs like want to change and want to become more contemporary, but you know, you got to go through a lot of people and boards and to change the whole curriculum (laughs) and change the whole you know, of what college needs to teach the students. Right. And nothing happens quickly in academic institutions, especially bigger universities. Small colleges can get away with more because they have like, there are just fewer hoops to jump through and less red tape. At a school like FSU, everything is top down and any large university is going to be like that, especially state institutions where everything is funded by the government. Like there's like a lot of, a lot of red tape. Yeah. Okay, so here you you serve as the research research associate. Yes. Can we talk about that? What does that sure. mean? Sure. So I'll preface it by saying I'm the only one in the world that we know about. My job doesn't exist anywhere else. So it's super cool. Um, and it's funded yeah. by the Andrew Mellon Foundation. So at FSU within the School of Dance, there is the Maggie Alice National Center for Choreography, which is often uh, referred to as MANCC. That's the acronym M-A-N-C-C. Okay. We are in the School of Dance. We share with the School of Dance, but we are not really affiliated. We're kind of our own independent entity. And so we bring in resident artists for, I mean, not right now that much with COVID, but for one, two or three weeks at a time. And we give them time, space, and resources to make their work. So we're focused on creative process. So they come in. These are mostly like big name people from New York who are doing that like downtown experimental thing. So independently chosen of the School of Dance, our director in partnership with certain organizations chooses the people and with external funding, we bring in these people. And so they come with their collaborators, they have their residency. And going back to this idea of research, like you do in grad school, I am essentially a research assistant to all of these artists. So someone might come in and say, I'm making a piece, this, I'll use a real example. One choreographer said, I'm making a piece about labor and the female body, and I'm looking at regimented movement practices. So I set up a trip for us to go to the local high school and we attended the JR. Wait, say that one more time. Yeah. The research. Yeah. So she's making a piece. Sorry. I'm from New York. So I talk really fast. Um, Yeah. (laughs) She's making a piece about labor and the feminine female body. And so she's looking at going through labor. Not labor, like baby labor, labor, like work. Okay. That's a good question. That's a good question. So (laughs) working and that's what lost me. I was like, totally (laughs) family friendly podcast and regimented movement vocabularies. So looking at like drill team and drum corps and those types of things. So I set up a trip for us to go to the local high school and we went to the JROTC class and they taught us a bunch of the drill moves. And then she like went back and put it into her piece and it was awesome. And we went to a parade where there were all of these different like military groups and marching bands. And we met with a professor on campus who directs the athletic bands because FSU has a really good marching band. And we went to FAMU, which is another university in Tallahassee. 
and they have like one of the best marching bands in the world. Like they're world renowned and we went to watch them perform. So I set up these different engagements, whether it's meeting with a professor or teaching a masterclass or going to a site or a museum. So I get to do all the fun stuff. It's like a field trip job where I get to sit in on these awesome, really deep conversations about fields that I know nothing about. And then it's really fun when the artist does a showing of their work because I can see how what they talked about manifests in the piece. So it's like a very niche position. It's super nerdy. It's really good stepping stone straight out of my MFA. I came out of my MFA in spring 2018 and I got this job offer in December. So I was freelancing for a few months and then was able to move down here and have employment. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's a really cool position. Obviously now it's a little different. We're doing some remote support. So like if artists want to meet with people on Zoom, I can set it up for them. Or if they just want me to get them like library resources because research university just have more access. I can send them that, but it's a little limited right now, but that's okay because I'm happy to be employed. It'll be back. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's really cool. Very unique. Yes. But then I also do the like, teach at a studio once a week and I teach yoga and I teach Pilates and I judge competitions and I make my own work and I like do all the things that any young independent artist would do (laughs) with their MFA. And then I get to teach at FSU one class a semester usually. So that's been good. What do you, what do you teach at FSU? Right now I just finished the semester of teaching Pilates. So that was of all things to have to teach online. That was ideal. Uh, Yeah, totally. It was mostly dance majors. So it was really fun because I could tailor it to their needs. And then last spring, and hopefully this spring, if the adjunct funding comes through, I'll be teaching dance appreciation, which is like a non-major survey course. It's a writing intensive course. So lots of grading, (laughs) but it satisfies the state's mandated writing requirements. So it's all good to have, it's good to have varied experiences for my own teaching and for the CV, you know, applications later. As an adjunct teacher, do you have any say in what you want to teach at all? Or do you just, they say, we need someone exactly. for this. That's that is your. exactly what happens. Are you interested in uh, teaching this? And it's more of like, if you want to teach, you're teaching this. But I am just grateful to have the opportunity. I will say like, hint to all the listeners, if you want something, ask for it, because they wouldn't have known that I wanted to teach. Like the chair of the department doesn't know that the research associate, even though they knew me from before, like they don't know that I want to teach. Right. And so I reached out and I said, Hey, if there are any opportunities, I'd love to be considered. And then they were thrilled because they needed someone to teach the classes. And so always ask because the worst that will happen is someone will say no. Yeah. Then you'll move on. Cool. So most MFA programs that I've looked at, they look like they focus on choreography and we're, we've been talking a lot about choreography. So do you think that as a dancer thinking about getting their MFA, is the main focus choreography? Like if they, if they want to perform, if they want to, I don't know, create other stuff or just, I I don't even know what else to say, but is choreography the main focus? The only thing they really should think about? Yes. If you hate choreographing, if you hate choreographing an MFA program is probably not right for you. There might be some exceptions to that, especially if you're, if you've had a really impressive career and you just need the piece of paper which is like the opposite of the boat I was in at 22 and just like wanting to learn. If you have had a great performance career and you're mostly interested in transitioning to teaching in higher ed, you can maybe get away with doing less choreographically, but at most schools, so like graduate school exists to do research. 
And in our field, choreography is the research. So you could make a case for a performance project at a lot of programs. There was one student two years ahead of me and she did a, her thesis was performance-based and she had different, she commissioned choreographers. She had to seek outside funding, but she was able to commission three choreographers to set solos on her. And she was writing, it was something about, I'm not a scientist. I'm like a humanities gal, but she was writing about like metacognition and like the learning process, I think. So it was more of a science focus, which is going to be harder. A lot of programs are not going to support that type of thesis. They want you to write humanities writing about the work you're making. And so I would say if you're 22 and you want to perform, like I met some people at my auditions who were my age at the time and were like, well, I just want to be a performer. And my response to that is, so go be a performer. You like an MFA is not going to get you a job performing. Yeah. And like, you know, you're an employed dancer. I'm sure that you learned so much in undergrad, but you don't need an, like an MFA is not going to get you a job. Like if you want to BFA did without my BFA. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That training is super important. And like the maturity that you gain being in a program, like that's the big thing. Like, and there are so many talented dancers out there and it is a hard field to be in, but you make yourself unique and it's what you bring to the table because everyone can do a triple pirouette and whack their face nowadays. Right. I would say if you want to be a performer, don't go to an MFA program. Wait, because if you want to be a performer and then go back to teaching, there's no shame. Like it's totally normal to be 45 and in an MFA program with a 22 year old and then everything in between, like every they're pretty diverse age wise. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like my program, we were all around the same age and pretty young, but like at FSU right now, there are some returning professionals who are in their forties and then there are grad students in their twenties. So it's, it's not like other fields where you should, you have to do it right away. Yeah. Nice. So you have your company MK Rep. Yes. Is that something you started in college with this choreography thought or did your MFA help you get that? Or how did you get started with creating your own company? So I was making my work in grad school and one of my dancers, it's so funny because I had a notification on Instagram this morning that was like, see your post from three years ago or whatever. And one of the dancers, I reposted it and he responded and was like, oh my God, I miss this so much. I miss the repertory. Like we joke, the MK rep thing is like kind of a joke because no one in their twenties has repertory, you know, like I have like, I've made only so many pieces and, um, and like my aesthetic is I love humor in performance. And so people who see my work kind of get the nod and like the logo has like a big sparkly period at the end of rep. Like it's, it's a little cheeky, but, um, (laughs) I, yeah. So I made my third year, I made three pieces, one of which was my thesis that I was like, I really like these and they all kind of fit together. They're very clearly within this one aesthetic and like, they're very clearly me and anyone who watched them was like, Oh my God, that was so you. And so I was like, I'm going to put a label on this. And my, a couple of my dancers and one of my best friends, they were like, MK rep, MK rep, like you should call it MK rep. And so I, yeah, I did my first show. I produced my own fringe festival show in Rochester right after I graduated, like the following fall. And then I made a couple of other pieces since I haven't been doing that much, obviously with COVID kind of taking a hiatus, but I have a school sponsorship, which this is another like rabbit hole, but basically through an organization called Fractured Atlas, you just apply to them and I pay 10 bucks a month, which is negligible. And basically if people want to make donations to me, 
they go through fractured atlas and then it's tax deductible. So like at the end of the year, if my family is like, what do you want for Hanukkah? And I'm like, just make a donation to my company, even if it's 20 bucks, but it makes it more legit than someone being like, here's $20 for your dance company. Or like people who are like, here's 20 bucks for your dance hobby. It just legitimizes what you're doing. Yeah. And it makes it tax deductible for them. So that's the way that I function financially for that. I have put a little bit of my own money into it, but mostly it comes from donations um, from private people. So yeah. just to, to get started like that, do people need to have a lot of money to try to create something like this? Or You don't need a lot. You don't need a lot. If you, it depends. If, you're, if you know enough people in your community, you can always barter. And that goes yeah. for anything. Like as a dancer, if you're like, or as a dancing doesn't help me as much, but like as a yoga Pilates teacher to a massage therapist friend, Hey, I'll give you three free classes for a free massage, like those types of things. And if you know people in your community, they might donate a venue. Like if you know someone who owns like a very beautiful, I'll just use a yoga studio as an example, cause I've gone to plenty mm-hmm. of showings in yoga studios. Like they'll probably give you the space for free or for a discounted rate. Or maybe there's someone who owns like a cool warehouse space, like being creative and not being dead set on like, I need to produce a show in a theater, Yeah, especially because like that's the field is moving away from that. Like most people do not produce, most contemporary choreographers are not making work in traditional theater spaces anymore. And a big part of that is money. Like there's Mm -hmm. no one supporting that. So get creative, get to know your community, wherever you're living, like get to know people, go to local businesses and introduce yourself, like make, make it known what you do to other people. And now that we're all on social media, either make your Instagram super friendly to all and not inappropriate or have a separate one for (laughs) your dance stuff and like give people your Instagram handle and be like, Hey, I'm having a show, go follow me. And it's, it's like a calling card now. Like I have business cards and I give them to people, but like no one wants it. They all throw it out. They're like, what's your Instagram? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like being- It's on the card. Yes, exactly. I bought these for a reason. Exactly. And I think mine are super cute. They're like curved on the edges. I love them, but I carry a few with me and every once in a while, like if I go to a conference, that's the only time. Mm-hmm. And those are like scholarly, like nerdy conferences where we're presenting papers and yeah. those people, like I'm super into that. And those people want my business card, but like the person who's donating their yoga studio to me for three hours to have a production, like that person doesn't care. They just want no. to look at my Instagram and see my work or my website even. Um, so having an internet press presence can help you a lot. I have found and yeah, being, being a good community member, like you don't need to be like saving the world and doing a ton of community service, but being a friendly face and like being loyal to places, even like people have performances in coffee shops now, you know, Mm. things like that happen all the time. I mean, no, I shouldn't say all the time because COVID, but we're in a weird time in the last prior to COVID though. Like people are using spaces so creatively outdoor spaces are also a thing. You often need a permit, but some parks will let you do it for free. So just do your research and you don't need a ton of money to start up make friends make friends but but that's always important exactly you need a social life and I will say something that I'm very passionate about is I will not start a project unless I have money to pay the dancers I will not let dancers work for free it's different when you're in school you should do every opportunity that you can that feels safe but like I even if it's 15 bucks an hour 10 bucks an hour low 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 money 
I will not make dancers rehearse for free now that we're all out in the world. Again, different when you're in school, people shouldn't be getting paid because you're paying to go to school. But yeah, I mean, I always pay my dancers. If I don't have a lot of funds, I'll figure out a way to make a solo, whether it's on me or I'm paying one person to make the solo, or I'll like do a collaboration because my best friend is in the same boat and she and I collaborate on things and we don't pay each other because we're both in it together. Right. But that is something that I'm really passionate about. Other people will make the like exposure argument. And I'm not about that. I don't think it's cool. I don't care if you're 22 or 42 and have no experience versus tons of experience. It doesn't need to be a lot, but dancers need to get paid. That's like my soapbox soapbox of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Dancers need to get paid. Right. It's a job. This is not a hobby. Like it can be a hobby and a job. Like you can be passionate about your job, but this is a job. And like, this is our livelihood and people need to pay their bills. That's right. And eat. And that's right. That's right. And we don't have to just do it for free because we're, we like it. That's or like I'm to get some exposure. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Where can they reach out to you if they have any questions about your experience? So I just talked about internet presence and here's a plug for mine. Um, my website yeah. is madelinekurtz.com. M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E-K-U-R-T-Z.com. And my contact info is all there. I also like, I don't think it's weird to reach out to people via social media. Like that's how we got connected. Mm-hmm. So my Instagram is at Maddie Kurtz 92. And I have another separate one for MK rep, which is linked on Maddie Kurtz 92. I'm much more active on, on my personal than my company. And I need to be better about that. So this is my yes. public vow to be more active, but I'm always happy to talk via DM phone, whatever, reach out, be in touch. Awesome. So there you go. If you have any questions, reach out to Maddie on her Instagram or her website, Maddie Kurtz 92. There it is. Well, thanks so much, Maddie. Thanks for coming on the show. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I learned a lot about the MFA programs and I hope you guys did too. Bye, Maddie. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Dance Colleges and Careers brought to you by InstaDance. This episode is edited by Brayden Grubb and myself, Brittany Noltemeyer. Theme song is created by Matthew Claiborne at Flamingo Sound and Show. And thank you to my sponsors, the Chiropractic Center of Leesburg and Claremont in Florida and Pure Hemp Labs. Catch you on the inside.